Well, today uh, there is a special treat uh, for you guys. Um, some of you may remember, and if you've been coming to Frontline for a little while, uh, Jeremy Grinnell. And Jeremy is back in the house with us today, which is awesome. And um, yeah. If you don't know Jeremy, um, Jeremy uh, came to our church um, from the ministry world uh, during a time that was really a rough season in his life and in his family's life. And it just so happened, um, it, was a, it was a season in my life where uh, things were kind of rough. And so we quickly became brothers and um, just spoke into each other's lives. And I'm so grateful for this guy. And God uh, has done just an amazing work uh, in his life. And some of you know his story. And so what, what you're going to get to hear this morning is actually kind of part two of last week's message. Last week we talked about uh, the church in Colossae. And so this is going to be part two of that message from a different perspective, and I think you're really going to be blessed uh, by what you hear this morning. And so with that being said, will you welcome back to the platform here at Frontline, our good friend, Jeremy Grinnell. Thank you. It is good to be back with you. Uh, we have not worshipped at Frontline for... Uh, it's almost a year now. I'll tell you a little more about the, that journey in a bit, but I, I actually feel very blessed to join you on your, your road trip, the last Sunday of your road trip through Paul's epistles. Uh, the last road trip my family took was this spring. We took our four kids, packed them in a minivan, and drove to Florida <laughs> and back. I mean, it's, it's you know, because we wanted to see the mouse. And... Uh, you know, with a six-year-old who's car sick and a 14-year-old who's mad because she can't Snapchat and doesn't want to do anything with me anyway. So that, that trip pretty much went like you'd expect. I think I just had a little shudder of PTSD. No, it, it actually was a, it, it went, it was a good trip. We had fun. Now let us never speak of it again. <laughs> Brian uh, uh, spent last week talking about the church in Colossae uh, this little church in a little town in the kind of backwaters of the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't know what to compare it to. I'm from, I live in Rockford, so I guess I'll say the, the Sparta of the Roman Empire. <laughs> he writes it to a, a ch the church there in Colossae, which meets in the home of a man named Philemon. And uh, what makes the letter, the, the book of Colossians, the letter to Colossae, so unusual or so different than all the other Pauline epistles is, is actually a second letter that traveled along with it. Because Paul actually sent at least two letters along on that journey. The letter to the church, the, kind of the whole church that would have been read on Sunday morning, and then this personal letter to the man Philemon whose house they met in. And both of these letters have been preserved for us in the Bible. So we actually have, when studying Colossians, or like we have this extra little narrative that sort of fills out and flavors the book of Colossians in a way we don't have for other things. So for those of you who may not have been here last week, we're going to kind of get a running start into it because, as Brian said, I'm going to kind of pick up and, and give more of that story, some more perspectives on that story. Because that little letter, that single one-chapter letter written to Philemon is about a slave that Philemon owned. Onesimus was his name. We don't know much about him, but he was apparently a pretty worthless slave. 
We don't know the story, but either he, you know, stole something from Philemon and then ran off, you know, a runaway slave, or was found to be so worthless that Philemon actually sent him to Rome to be sold. I mean, we don't know. The point is he found himself leaving his master's house in great disgrace. And you talk about a low point. You know, you, make, you would make a lousy slave. That's how bad you are. I mean, I mean, honestly, you can't get lower than this. So he travels all the way across the Roman Empire, ends up meeting Paul somehow as Paul is imprisoned there in a jail cell, over some period of time is converted to Christianity, and then he himself, Onesimus, is sent back with a fellow traveler, Tychicus. They're sent back carrying the letters to the church of Colossae and this personal letter <laughs> to his old master, Philemon. Awkward. So I want to pick up the narrative this week with the knock at Philemon's front door. You know, he's sitting in the dining room one morning eating his Cheerios and reading his newspaper. And this is like a long time ago, so they still had newspapers. Um, the doorbell rings and he gets up and opens it and bang, it's Onesimus. Now... Onesimus would be considered a runaway slave in some regard. Either he ran away from Onesimus or he ran away from Rome and came back, one, one, one way or the other. In Rome, a runaway slave was under penalty of death. Rome had had problems with slave revolts in the previous century, and they, they took no chances. Onesimus, by returning to his hometown, was under penalty of death. You can see the blood sort of come into Philemon's cheeks, right? The ears pink. You see the, the fists tighten, the teeth clench. Maybe Tychicus had to step forward and kind of get between him and say, you know, Philemon, just, just read the letter. Just read the letter first before you do anything you'll regret. So now we pick them up back in the dining room with Onesimus, perhaps unconsciously having resumed the place against the wall where he used to stand with his eyes down, occasionally glancing up to see what the result of the letter was. Philemon with the letter, or maybe letter, however they would have, in his hand, kind of looking up occasionally at Onesimus. Did Onesimus know what was in the letter? You think? Does he know that at that moment Philemon is reading the words, these words from Paul? Accordingly, Though I, Paul, am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, to, to do what I want you to do. You didn't know Paul was passive-aggressive, did you? I could command it, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Yes, yes, formerly he was useless to you. But now, indeed, he is useful to you and to me. And I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, what is Philemon going to do? Is he going to embrace him as a newfound brother in Christ, like Paul wants? Or execute him as a runaway slave, which is his right? Now, of course, it's even more complicated this because there's also the small matter of this other letter, the letter to the whole church that's got to be read on Sunday at the church gathering. And Onesimus is one of the messengers, so having him sort of disappear, you know, to cement shoes, feed the fishes, something like that, 
would be awkward, especially when Paul apparently made sure it couldn't happen that way by concluding the letter to the whole church in Colossae like this. Tychicus, the other fellow, will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister, fellow servant of the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And, oh, by the way, <clears throat> Ananesimus, gasp, our faithful beloved brother, who is one of you, double gasp, they will tell you everything that's taken place here. You want to talk about like whispers in a room. That's Onesimus. What's he doing back here? I don't even know what the analogy is. Maybe you long-time frontliners. You've been here for 10, 15 years. You turn the lights on when they open the building kind of person. I don't know. Who would it be? Who would you be most shocked, aggrieved, and offended if next Sunday Pastor Brian were to stand up and say, and today's sermon is by... What person in frontlines passed? I don't know. I have no idea. But can you imagine that? The person least likely, least deserving to stand here and, oh, they're preaching the sermon. They're going to read the letter from, from, from Paul this Sunday. What a magnificently awkward human drama. Netflix is releasing a miniseries on it next week. But all this brings us to the main question for today. Last week, Brian focused kind of on Philemon, on Philemon's failure to seek the lost within his own house, right? Onesimus was in the church, was there in the building, and never heard of Jesus, had to go all the way to Rome to find Christ. And now subsequently, the request to release Onesimus from his debt, free him, and see him as the brother that he is, with all its intended nasty consequences that it would have for a man of reputation in the community like Philemon. You know, the embarrassment, right? In fact, a man who, God help him, probably had other slaves who might take it into their heads to convert to Christianity so they could be like Onesimus and be freed, right? I mean, heck, what's a, what's a Christian doing owning other human beings anyways? I mean, you feel all of the dominoes of Philemon's life beginning to teeter. What's being asked of him to forgive and release this errant slave has the possibility of upending his whole life. And I guess all I can say about that is, yeah, my friends, that is often the cost of forgiveness. But like I said, we're not going to rework Philemon's perspective this morning. We're not here to talk about him. We're going to talk about Onesimus. From Onesimus, we learn something else. From Onesimus, we learn about the journey of a perpetrator back to his place of greatest shame. It's the principle of wide application. If you're doing a math problem in algebra, I don't know, maybe you're out of school. You do Sudoku or crossword puzzles, whatever, and you realize you got one wrong, one blank is filled in, you know, wrong. The worst thing you can possibly do is what? Keep going. Oh, it'll sort itself out in the end. No, no, no. You're in for an insoluble muddle if you just keep going. Sometimes the only solution is to go back to the place of the mistake, admit you got it wrong, and try to fix it there. You know, the idea of going back to your place of shame, your place of guilt, to deal with it, this is well known in therapeutic circles. I'm not saying anything that's probably new or shocking to you. Probably heard it on Oprah. 
but it's usually meant in a metaphorical sense. You know, go back in the sense of cast your mind back to that, that place or time where, where, that you've been hiding from, that moment of shame and guilt where you can there find a necessary healing before you can move on. You can deal with your past, right? Now, that may very well be the application for you today. It may be a metaphorical hearkening back to that moment you've been hiding from. Fair enough to confront it that failure or defeat, that moment of shame. But sometimes, my friends, sometimes the journey is literal. Like that for Onesimus. Like it was for me. I have told my story here at Frontline in the past. If you're interested, I thank God I am not here to tell it again. But you can go back, I'm sure, in the sermon archives online. You can probably find it if you want more of the nitty-gritty details. But the broad strokes of it, just so I can get on with it, for those of you who may be new, is that years ago, I was a well-respected well professor of theology at a university and a pastor of a local church here in West Michigan. And in a series of tragic events, I threw it all away in a fit of depression and, uh, and an emotional affair of sorts, publicly disgraced, humiliated, I, too, ran broken and bleeding across the whole empire with my family, and we found ourselves here at Frontline, where Brian did the slow and hard work of restorative justice over me, um, a work that few seemed really able or willing to attempt. He, he was my Paul. After a stint of about four years or so here at Frontline, what we like to call the hospital, <laughs> we uh, decided it was time to move on. Why? Because, you know, you don't live at a hospital. Sooner or later, you've got to go back home and get back to work. We didn't know what that meant for us. Don't know what that means for me. So a year-long story too bizarre to recount or even believe. If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. So I'm not going to. I'm going to jump to the bottom line. This year-long bizarre story that now finds us, here's the point, me and my family, worshiping again in the church I blew up. If you know anything about churches, you know that doesn't, that doesn't happen. We've been there for several months now. I can't say permanently. I don't know. I don't know the future. <laughs> I've given up trying to guess that. I wish I could tell you the whole story, but time prevents me. Suffice it to say this, that my very good friend, Pastor Dennis, who is the pastor who took over in that church after I blew it up, has been steadfast and relentless in his Pauline encouragement that such a journey all the way back was necessary for healing both to me, my family, and that community. So after this long series of events, Denise and I, my wife Denise and I, decided, okay, it's time. So imagine now, here's my Onesimus moment. Like Onesimus, I make the long, embarrassing journey back to the place of my greatest disgrace. And it wasn't all the way across the Roman Empire. It was barely a half mile from my front door. But for as hard as it was, it might as well have been Marco Polo going to China. Marco. Thank you. <laughs> you ever sat in a room 
thinking everyone was staring at you, and then realizing it's not a delusion, they really are. I mean, like you look and you can see like eyes. It's very awkward. To walk into that church and to find them on the very front edge of a sermon series on, of all things, divine irony here, the book of Philemon. To hear a story that I, having been raised in the church, you know, from my youth, have heard a hundred times, always with the same admonition, right? You know, we're all Philemon. We all have people who've hurt us, who's offended us, who've done things against us, people who've wronged us. You got to forgive. That's the lesson, right? Philemon needs to forgive. That's what Paul wants. And that's a true and necessary message. It's actually the first layer of meaning in the letter. But all of a sudden, I'm sitting in a room and I'm not hearing the story through the ears of Philemon anymore. Something's changed. And in that moment, you realize they're not Philemon. You're Onesimus. Crap. <laughs> You're the culprit. You're the perpetrator. You're the malefactor. You're not Jesus crucified. You're one of the guys on the other on one of the sides. I had just completed this circuitous route, six long years, back around the whole empire, just to find myself sitting back in the same chair of my greatest disgrace in life, sitting in a room wondering what everyone thought about me. Would I be allowed to stay? Would I be welcome? Wondering about the limits of uh, redemption, grace. And I'll tell you, because I'll tell you what my fears are, my fears were, they're probably your fears too, you've seen it happen. We talk a good game in Christianity about embracing the outcast, the fallen, the downtrodden, loving our enemies, restoring those who failed, right? But when things, bad things actually happen in our midst, we discover that our practices often don't match up. They're often informed not by restorative justice, but by risk mitigation. We have to protect ourselves, our institutions, our reputations, our church families from those who hurt us, which means that the Onesimuses, Onesimai, the many, plural of Onesimus, are thrust out to go heal someplace else if they can find a hospital. The, our faith in the gospel often features prominent in Christian mission statements, but are often writ very small in our policies and procedures. And it is to Dennis's credit, I don't want that to sound cynical. We've all experienced that at various levels. And it is to Pastor Dennis's credit that he was willing <laughs> to allow Onesimus back into the building. And I have learned some things from walking in the shoes of Onesimus that I would like to share with you this morning in these few remaining minutes because I imagine there may be an Onesimus or two here today. I'll bet in a group this size there's a, there's a couple, there's one or two of you who look back over your life and whatever the great failures are written in dark lettering across the sky of your soul 
And I don't know what it would be for you. It's probably different than it was for me, your failures in, in marriage or in parenting, failures in career or occupation, your failures with your own private addictions or obsessions. But you, you get in bed at night, close your eyes, and you too see the faces of the people you hurt. And you've run away. You've run far, far away across hills and rivers, real and metaphorical, trying to escape the shame that hunts you like an animal. Yes, Onesimus and I have something to say to you about what it means to go back, look into the eyes of the people you failed, and find life. Yeah, I have, a, I have many things to say. It would take a book. That's it, Brian. Let's write a book. 25% of the American population is writing a book at any given moment. Why shouldn't I be among them? <laughs> With the time I have left, I want to say just a couple of things about the subject of forgiveness. Because at the layer of the story, at the two-dimensional layer of the letter that we have in the, in the scriptures, that is really what it's about, you know. Here's the story of one man who must forgive another man who has failed him. All right, Philemon needs to forgive, Onesimus needs to repent, and then there's the question, will there be reconciliation? And that's, that's a good interpretation of the story. It is there. But like I said, I want to talk about Onesimus. Onesimus' journey is not just about repentance, it's about being forgiven. How do I accept the fact that I've been forgiven? Any of you who have ever needed forgiveness knows it's kind of humbling Right? It's hard to be forgiven. Sometimes it's as hard to be forgiven as it is to forgive. I kind of expected an amen on that, but there you go. Thank you. There was one, one faithful soul. But I want to give you two things, two thoughts on this question. How do I know and experience and, and believe that forgiveness really is real and has been granted? The first thing I'm going to tell you is a reminder of something you already know. Because Plato said, we need to be reminded more often than we need to be taught. The second is a challenge, or even maybe a condition, or an act, that if you will contemplate and attempt, try, engage in, I think it may be necessary even for you to actually feel and, and experience the forgiveness that you have been given. So let me begin with the reminder. Paul actually includes something like it into this letter to Philemon. He reminds us all of it in this way. He says to Philemon, if he, if Onesimus, has wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account, I will repay it. Paul here employs one of the great and central truths of Christianity. Maybe in the end, the most important truth. It is that my forgiveness rests upon another assuming my debt. This is the center, the center of the gospel, that my sins, my wrongs, my mistakes have been borne by, have been atoned for 
by someone else. Paul frequently talks in his epistles about God's children being in Christ. And he means a lot of things by that. But at the very least here, he means that the whole of my wretched, mixed up, misguided choices have been charged to another's account. And that the righteousness that that Christ, that Jesus merits in his righteous life has been credited to me. So now I am in Christ. Now, I, I hope this is not new or shocking. You have heard it here at Frontline many times, as recently as last week. This has always been the basic message of the gospel, that another stood in your place, another fought your battle. I'm here to simply remind you now that your renewed, continuing, ongoing acceptance of that belief has the power to free you, listen to this, even from self-inflicted torment. Yes, it's that powerful. And yet, and yet, I know what it is like to concede that, to believe it, and yet still not believe it. To have doubts over whether such a forgiveness can be real. How do we learn to believe that we have been forgiven in the face of the ongoing weight and struggle against shame and guilt, which are powerful enemies? Well, it's a huge question that probably requires equal parts theology and therapy. Truth. But I want to tell you something I've learned about believing in forgiveness, and I hope it will be helpful to you, and it is what in the challenge. It involves the challenge I mentioned. If you do this thing I'm about to say, if you will make it a practice, a habit, if you will contemplate it and attempt it, then I believe, I suspect you will begin to learn how to believe in your own forgiveness. But this is kind of scandalous and hard to hear. It's words that come, it's a challenge that comes directly from our Lord when he taught his disciples to pray. Forgive us our trespasses. And here's the hard part. As we forgive those who trespass against us. Ominous words. Offered without an exception, a reservation, or a smirk. In our conversation today, I take it to mean something like, if you want to have any hope of really feeling, experiencing the peace and release that comes with being forgiven, that is only going uh, to pass through the door of your ability to practice it on others. If we won't practice forgiveness on others, then honestly, yes, why should we expect to experience forgiveness ourselves? Why shouldn't God or other people be as stingy with release as we are? There are numerous parables about this. You can go read Jesus' words on it. If we do not forgive, then of course we're going to doubt the reality of forgiveness because we've never seen it in action. All right, pause. 
you, you're thinking perhaps, saying back to me, all right, you, you sound like you're talking about forgiving. So you sound like you're talking about Philemon again, not Onesimus. Remember, Onesimus is the perpetrator. He's the culprit. He's the malefactor. He's the one who needs forgiveness. So why are you, you said you were going to talk about Onesimus? Now you're talking about Philemon again, the one who's got to forgive. No, I'm not. I'm talking about, I am talking to perpetrators of evil. I'm talking to Onesimus. I'm talking to the guilty and the shame-filled. And I'm telling you, you need to learn to forgive as well. I'll give you an analogy. Police officer, blue lights in your rearview mirror. Why? Because you've been doing 60 in a 25 residential. Oh, let's make it really fun. You've been doing 80. Okay? And let's make it really horrible. Maybe there was a little alcohol involved. Your life's about to change. Right? You're going to end up in front of a judge on this one. You may end up with a suspended license. Okay? You're going to get public, publicly embarrassed. Your, your, your spouse, your kids, your roommates, whatever, they're going to be mad at you because like, they needed you to get to soccer games and now they can't, right? So the, the, the dominoes that are going to fall now in this scenario are significant. And you're going to walk out of this, I don't know, mad. Right? But everyone around you is going to say, what are you mad at? You knew better. Did you not realize driving 80 and 25 was going to result in all this? These are the just consequences. The cop gave you the ticket. That's his job. And here I come along saying to you today, oh, perpetrator of evil, oh, person driving 80 miles an hour, you need to forgive. Surely I'm talking nonsense. What or who am I supposed to forgive when I'm the one who screwed up? It doesn't make any sense. I'm the one who needs forgiveness. I'm Onesimus. What forgiving am I supposed to do? I think if you're being honest with yourself. And I don't disagree with you. You do need forgiveness. But here's what I've learned about the place that forgiveness is supposed to play in Christian spirituality. And it's much greater than we often assume. With our typical, simple, transactional picture of Philemon and Onesimus, one who must repent, one who must forgive. And if both do, maybe they can be reconciled. That's true so far as it goes, but I've come to think it's too small. If forgiveness is an act of release, a decision to not lay something on someone's account, to let go of my own sense of ought for the sake of something greater, and I think those are right definitions of forgiveness, then it certainly is an event of much wider applications. So wide that even perpetrators, if they want to understand their own forgiveness, are going to need to forgive. Again, forgive what? Well, we need to think about forgiveness because even just consequences have the capacity to embitter us. Do they not? Huh. Go back to that t your ticket. How do you feel about the cop? Not very pleasant, is it? You hate him? What about the judge who threw the book at you? Didn't show any mercy. What about the prosecutor who made it look as bad as she possibly could? What about your own family that's all mad at you now for betraying trust and hurting them, preventing them from getting to soccer games and all that kind of stuff? It's possible. No, it's even likely that the guilty person feels bitter over the consequences everyone else knew were coming. My friends, that's a kink in our nature that we can do the wrong thing and still feel a grievance. 
but I'd suggest it's exactly the kink in our nature that forgiveness is supposed to address. It's not just victims who have to forgive. Perpetrators do too. See, forgiveness, and here's the dirty little secret that I never knew until I had to like wrestle with it myself. Forgiveness has less to do with actual wrongs done against us and a whole lot more to do with perceived wrongs done against us. The things that chafe our soul do not even have to be real grievances to embitter us. They can be stupid things and be just as cancerous to the soul. You don't believe me? Look at your friends' Facebook feeds. Look at the things that they are upset and aggrieved about. The things that cause them outrage. Have you ever sat there on your computer screen, sort of from a distance now on the outside, going, my word, what a silly thing to be upset over. Do they not have more important things going on in their life? Who has time to be aggrieved, upset, and offended about something as trivial and minor as that? No, you're just proving my point. You may be right. Their grievances may be petty or even non-existent, but you can tell from the outside looking at it, you can see the harm that their clutching, angry, vindictive attitude is doing to their own soul. Can't you? I'll turn it back to you. You can hate that police officer with your whole heart because he just did his job. And the dark mark that it will leave on your soul may be just as spiritually corrosive as if you were a real victim of police brutality. You do not have to be actually wronged to be under the obligation to forgive. You only have to feel you've been wronged. It doesn't make any difference whether or not the person sitting next to you would even agree that it's a real grievance. Here's the principle. Regardless of whether my grievance is real or imagined, anytime I feel my soul rear up with a sense of mistreatment, the obligation to forgive has descended upon me. That's how big the world of forgiveness really is. So big that it's not just the letter of the law, forgive those who've sinned against us, but more, forgive even those against whom I feel resentment for having done the right thing. Poor Onesimus. Poor you. Poor me, his siblings. Is it possible for you to have done a great wrong against others, been punished for it, and still feel a grievance? Yes. So then your challenge this morning is this. Even for perpetrators, culprits, and malefactors, the road to life, the road to peace, the road to receiving and understanding your own forgiveness may lie in an act that's actually indistinguishable from forgiveness. You may have to forgive. Even people who acted justly. That's how complicated the world really is. And all this assumes, of course, that you really have nothing to complain about, but it's also probable, if I'm the person I'm talking to today, you probably do. Onesimus wasn't just a perpetrator. Sure, insofar as the letter goes, he's the one who's come back, Philemon needs to forgive. But realize, in this scenario, it's more complicated, just like life is. Onesimus wasn't just a perp. He really was a victim, too. Remember, he'd been a slave. Philemon was his master. 
Certainly in the days of his servitude, there were indignities that piled up, wrongs endured, perceived or real that rankled his heart. Surely there was no love for Philemon there, or else he wouldn't have run. We don't have any of this in the letter, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to envision Paul's jail cell in Rome as he's sitting there with an angry young man sitting across from him. And the apostle telling this angry man, Onesimus, before you can go back to your hometown and make things right, you have to forgive Philemon. And you can hear Onesimus raging back against that. Well, slavery is a blighted and evil institution. And Paul nodding in ironic agreement. Yes, it is, but yet Onesimus... You must forgive. In the eyes of the world, Onesimus may have been the perp, the thief, the runaway. That doesn't mean he has nothing to forgive. If that's your situation this morning, listen to me. One perp to another. Your road to healing may lie in forgiving the whole world that marginalized you and pushed you aside. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is addressed to perpetrators and victims alike. And so in my last breath this morning, I want to give one final thought for your soul, maybe heavy as mine, asking how, how, how do I forgive? I can tell you only the lesson I have learned. Remember earlier how I told you, how I reminded you that the gospel declares that your sins were placed on the back of another, how your forgiveness was purchased at the price of another man's innocent wounds, your debt taken into his ledger. Perhaps in order for you to be able to forgive the whole world, means that you're going to have to realize that those who wronged you have the same Redeemer. To forgive is to recognize that others' wrongs against you are covered by the same Savior who has covered your wrongs against them. We who have allowed our sins to be laid on another's back must now allow others' sins against us to be borne by the same back. And in the end, whether in this two-week journey into the lives of Philemon and Onesimus, you ultimately find yourself in Philemon's position or Onesimus's position. Whichever one you identify with is not the point of this story. The point of this story is that we have watched two Christian brothers from such different social stations and with so much troubled history between them realize that they have a common savior. A savior who is not only interested in giving new life to victims, but to perpetrators as well.